What a Christ-honoring song. Makes me want to bow before him. Thank him. Praise him for what he's done. Praise him for who he is. Praise him for what he affords me, what he affords you. He's afforded us great blessings in life. Just by going to the cross and dying for our sins, being our atonement, my sin was placed upon his head so that I might go free. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As the hymn writer has stated, he is pleased to look upon him and pardon me. Not only was he willing to save and redeem, claim me for himself, but looking down the road, knowing the many times I would be fickle in service and feeble in my service to him, yet he still loves me. There's nothing you can do to diminish the agape of God. That's the love of God. It's a love that has determined to love for love's sake, for honor's sake. There's nothing you can do today to make God love you less. And there's nothing you can do today to make God love you more. Oh, the love of God. Charity never faileth. But whether there be uh, tongues, they shall. Whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Um, Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. But charity never faileth. The love of God never faileth. Faileth, child of God. I think we said this maybe last Sunday or Wednesday, recent. But oftentimes we, um, we think somehow we can uh, gain favor with God, but you can't gain any more favor than you have. If you've trusted and come to Christ, if you've repented and trusted Christ, our favor is anchored in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'm grateful for that. I was... Uh, Quoting a couple of verses there out of 1 Corinthians 13. I love the way that chapter closes and wish I could quote it uh, to you, but I love the way it uh, closes. If I can get my way over there to it, the Bible says, as a matter of fact, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Would you do that? Of course, it closes. We'll read it again here in just a moment. And now, by the faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Faith, hope, charity. But the greatest of these is charity. It is agape. Um, It's not a filial love, but it is a God love. 1 Corinthians 13. I feel impressed to read the chapter. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13... Matter of fact, back up to chapter 12, verse 31. It will fit right in context, lead you right into chapter 13. You remember, you've heard me say it countless times. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 deals with spiritual gifts. And the Corinthians coveted the more showy gifts. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be heard. And right in the midst of Chapters 12, 13, 14, of course, and obviously is 13. And Paul is going to talk to us about something immensely. It's ultimately so much more valuable. In chapter 12, he closed by saying, 
but covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. He says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, that's agape, have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. If I were, I'm not. I pick along this line a lot. I'm not the best preacher. I'm not even a good preacher. But were I the best preacher living? Um, and you had a symbol, a, a loud symbol, and I tried to preach, but all we could hear was that symbol. It would not matter what I could do, how I could preach, how you can sing, how you can teach, how we can do whatever we do around here. It's just like a noisy gong if we don't have agape, if we don't have the love of God about us. It's all in vain. It's no use. It's no account. At the judgment seat, it's going to be burned up with fire. Um, the Bible teaches us that we, according to 1 Corinthians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5, we who are saved are going to the judgment seat of Christ, and our works are going to be tried. And what withstands the fire, the judgment of God, is what will stand. I'm afraid there'll be much more loss than will be gain. Um, myself and some preachers across the southeast, we constantly have conversation about celebrityism in the ministry. And some of us have picked that conversation up again. It ought not be named. Should it? It ought not be named. We're not in the entertainment business for preachers, for singers, for whatever. We're not in the entertainment business. We're not in the showmanship business. Um, that's not going to stand before Christ. His all-piercing eyes sees through all of that. And if we can't have the love of God about us, we preach about the love of God. If we can't show the love of God, we may be some of the biggest hypocrites known in the area. We preach on the grace of God. If we can't be graceful people, if we can't display the grace of Christ to others, um, something is amiss, right? He said that all we're doing is making racket. As a matter of fact, right down the street from where they would gather in Corinth uh, was the temple of Diana. And that's what they did down there. They would bring the service to a height, and there would be the clashing of cymbals together, much like a marching band would use them. And they'd make the, it'd get louder and louder and louder, and they felt like somehow that was worshiping and doing honor for Diana. And he said, if you do what you do and you don't have the love of God about you, you know better than priests down the street and in the middle of idolatry, what we are to have, what we claim to have, ought to make a difference in our lives. No matter where we are, on the job, at home, in the community, he said, though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. You know where it all started. All the problems started at Corinth and their party spirit. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Everything else evolved out of that. Everything else issues out of chapter 1. 
so gifted. They said, Paul is my preacher. Another one said, well, Apollos is my preacher. Another one said, well, Peter, he's my preacher. Another one said, well, Christ, he's my preacher. Why would we pick one when we can have all four of them? He said, you have a party spirit. You have a jealousy among you. You're envious of one another. You want one to come before the other, much like the mother of the two disciples. Lord, uh, could it be when you come into your kingdom, you let my sons, one sit on the right hand, one on the left? He said, it's not for me to give. That's a wrong attitude when it comes to serving God. We have a deacon rotation system around here. It, it, wouldn't it be awful if one of our men started politicking for a deacon's position? As far as I'm concerned, that would disqualify him, right? That's a servant's position. But every, every position in the church is a servant's position. We who are husbands are to be servants to our wives, our wives to your husband, to our children, children to the mom and dad, servants. If we can keep an attitude like that, uh, to keep our church where it needs to be. Sometimes I think uh, our attitudes is what gets us in trouble with God more than anything else anyhow, right? Uh, we're kind of like Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter number 2. He said, I said, I got, I made, I. And he just had a big I, capital I problem. And we can get that way. As a matter of fact, we got more about that. More of that about us than we care to have, right? May we have the attitude of John the Baptist. He must increase, but I must decrease. May we have the attitude that of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't say, I am what I am by the grace of God, but he said, by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And that ought to come first. Christ ought to come first. We'll find our rightful position if so, but we ought to have the love of God about us, right? They had an issue with speaking in tongues. I've been off, uh, often asked uh, in my early years how I felt about speaking in tongues, and how I felt about Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and 14. I don't have a problem with all that. If you'll take it in its context, it really shuts down your modern charismatic movement. It shuts it completely down. As a matter of fact, what you see today is not what took place in Acts 2. And if you used, if you want me to give you a little lesson on speaking in tongues, if you'll use what uh, Paul wrote about guidelines for speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, if you're looking with me in 13, look at 14. I'll give you a little lesson. Cost you 10 bucks. How about that? Everybody pitch in 10 bucks a piece. We'll go Longhorn this afternoon after Cooper's ordination. Look, let me show you something. Let me show you something. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. Look at verse 27. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, tell me what word there is italicized. Did you know that your King James translators, those 56 men, did you know that in their integrity they italicized words that were not in the text to let you know that the flow of the translation to make it make better sense, they borrowed a word and inserted it. But in their integrity, they italicized it. They italicized Keep that in mind. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, watch this. Let it be by two. He's talking about a church service here. By two, or at the most by three. And then he says, let one interpret. 
And then he goes on, verse number 28 says, But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, that'd shut down this, that'd shut down this modern charismatic movement. And I believe there are people saved in that movement. I, I believe some of them are saved. I really believe that. As a matter of fact, like it or don't like it, Paul called them brethren. Just messed up in their doctrine. He did call them brothers. They were brothers in Christ. But back over in 13, I sure didn't mean to get on this, but we're here. By the way, while we're doing tongues, let me go ahead and finish that in Acts chapter number 2. You can't change the word of God. It's been there the whole time. It's been right here the whole time. Look at Acts chapter number 2. Hold your place, 1 Corinthians 13. We, we will read the chapter here in just a moment. Let me show you something. On the day of Pentecost, there was as much miracle in the hearing as it was in the speaking. You remember what took place? At the very most, 120 spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost. At the very most, from what we can tell from the text, at the very most, the 120 that were in the upper room, at the very most, they spoke in tongues. Now, the whole crowd that was saved that day didn't speak in tongues. The church is baptized on the day of Pentecost. A lot of debate on when it started. Did it start? Did Christ start it? John the Baptist? We know John didn't start it. A lot of people believe he did. Christ and his apostles, they are the foundation. He is the foundation. They are foundation stones. But watch this. Watch this. While we're here speaking about this, Acts chapter number 2, the great day of Pentecost. People try to have a new Pentecost service, a tarrying service, and have another repeat of Pentecost. You'll never have another Pentecost any more than you'll have another Calvary or you'll have another Easter, if you want to call it that, Resurrection Sunday of the Lord. There's only one Calvary, only one Resurrection morning when he got up from the grave. There's only one Pentecost. You're not going to have another one. But watch, watch this speaking in tongues in Acts chapter number 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, fully come, it'd come and gone 1,500 years, year after year. But when it's fully come, brought to its conclusion, all the shadows through those years have now found their fulfillment on this great day of Pentecost, 50 days after Christ's resurrection. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord. If you underline in your Bible, you ought to underline that phrase, with one accord. That's a key phrase to the book of Acts, which is a transitional book in the New Testament. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, And it sat upon each of them. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. In other words, you've got different nationalities here on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. And he's going to list all these nationalities here in a moment. He's going to mention, uh, Luke will record for us this speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost and what took place. Verse number 6 says, Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. You almost want to ask why. Well, he says, Because that every man heard them speak in his own language. It'd be about like me going to Asia and speaking in a different tongue and dialect. I'm speaking in English, in the English tongue, but they're hearing me in their native tongue and dialect. So there was as much miracle in the hearing on the day of Pentecost as it was in the speaking. That right? And we've already been given in the book of First Corinthians 14 the guidelines for should somebody do that. Let it be by one, two, 
Let one interpret. Two or three, let one interpret. Let them stop long enough. Let somebody interpret. You won't ever see that. You won't ever see that. Verse number 6, they're hearing them. The Bible says in verse 7 of Acts 2, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Watch this. And how hear we, every man, and our own tongue where we were born? Watch these different nationalities as they're listed in verses 9 through 11. Watch this. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabian. And now for the third time, the Bible says, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Isn't that amazing? Do you know only God can do that? Only God can do that. And God did that on the great day of Pentecost. They were coveting those showier gifts, drew more attention to themselves. Back over in 1 Corinthians 13, we read verse 1. The Bible says in verse number 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy, in other words, if I've been called to preach, and though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. If I could pray and make your mountain move, but I care nothing about you. He says, I am nothing. Do you know you can take a piece of paper and you could put zero plus zero plus zero plus zero plus zero across the top, down the full body of the page, turn it over, do it on the back, and put an equals mark on the bottom right corner when you finish with all those zeros. You know what you still got? You still got a big zero. But you know all you've got to do is put one positive in there. And then you've got something positive. You've got something God can work with and God can use in the love of God. Look at verse number three. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned. He said, if I be a martyr, if I give all my goods to those who are hungry and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Then he states that charity suffereth long. It's long-suffering and it's kind. It means it's gentle. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Hadn't got an attitude. He said it's not puffed up. Doth not behave in itself unseemly. In other words, unbecoming. Seeketh not her own. It's not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all All things, verse 8, charity never faileth. Verse 13, and now abideth faith, hope, um, faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. I love verses 4 to 6. I'm fixing to stop. Put Christ's name where charity is. He is the personification of love. Just as sure as in Proverbs 8, the book of Proverbs is dealing with wisdom and Wisdom is personified in the person of Christ. You can see that in Old Testament Scripture in Proverbs 8. If you want to get a good look at wisdom, you get a good look at it in Proverbs 8. Christ is the wisdom of God, and he is the love of God. Look at verse number 4. Let's put Christ's name where you find the word charity. It won't do one bit of harm to the word of God. Watch this. Christ suffereth long. Can you say amen to that? 
Christ is kind. Can you say amen to that? Christ envieth not. Christ vaunteth not himself. Christ is not puffed up. The Bible teaches us even when he was reviled, he reviled not again. Christ doth not behave himself unseemly. Christ uh, seeketh not himself. It's not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Christ beareth all things, Christ believeth all things, hopeth all things, and Christ never faileth. A lot of things are going to fail in your life, but Christ will never forsake you. He'll never fail you. There'll never be a time, if you've ever come to him, there'll never be a time. He refuses none who comes to him. If you've ever come to him, there'll never be a time that he'll turn and walk away from you. It's tough, isn't it? Sometimes in life, you're rejected by those that you feel like uh, ought to love you. Just by the law of nature, ought to love you. But they don't. They choose not to. Tough, isn't it? When a friend walks away that you've uh, been rather close to and depended on, they've depended on you. Uh, Tough when a family member walks away. Tough. I'll promise you it's a glorious thing to have a Savior like Jesus Christ. He never forsakes his own. Miss Angie, won't you come to the piano? Perhaps what we need to do, as a matter of fact, we started this morning. Johnny Wilder opened this up this morning asking the question from Scripture, What seeketh ye? What seeketh ye? I mentioned the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, of course, he penned three books of our Bible, right? He penned the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's in the height of his enraptured love with his bride. It's a picture of Christ and his church, but also you get a lot of instruction about your marriage in the Song of Solomon. He pinned down uh, the Proverbs in the height of his wisdom and glory and his splendor. Um, you remember he went to the Lord with a request. He didn't request riches and influence. He requested wisdom. He said, in essence, I am but a child. I don't know how to come in and out among the people. I need your wisdom, God. Would you lend me your wisdom? Would you grant me your wisdom? And then God added all this other stuff to him. As a matter of fact, where Brother Johnny was in Matthew chapter number 6, you remember what got everybody in trouble down there in chapter number 6? All these things. All these things. And then finally, the Lord Jesus said, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Instead of chasing all these things, he said, Chase Christ, and then the things that catch up later and chase you. Oh, what a God we serve. But Solomon, uh, Solomon, he pinned down the, the book of Ecclesiastes as a sermon. You've heard me refer to that. I'm going to preach the book to you one of these days, the Lord willing. But it's a testimony that Solomon actually got his life right with God before he died. He pinned that book in the evening shade of life. Someone said that youth is often a mistake, manhood a struggle, and old age full of regrets. That's what Ecclesiastes is all about. As a matter of fact, his theme in chapters 1 through 11 is under the sun, vanity of vanities. He announced his sermon title right out of the gate. He said, vanity of vanities, all is vanities, saith the preacher. He tried all of it, gathered up all the goods he could get, thought that'd satisfy him. Nothing brought everlasting satisfaction to him 
The only thing brought peace to him is when he gets out from under the sun, that's everything apart from Christ, gets in chapter number 12, he gets us back above the sun. And he lets us know one of these days life is going to leave us with shaky hands and weak legs and a scattered brain, and we won't be the man we used to be. And life and time will take its process in your life and mine like it has in the generations gone before us. And the only thing that's going to matter is what you do for for God. As a matter of fact, that 12th chapter, chapter, he said this. He directed his comments toward you young people. He said, remember now thy creator in thy youth before the evil days come. If you want to live for God, young person, you can live for God. It ain't your mama's fault or your daddy's fault if you don't. What's in there is going to come out. Even your speech will tell on you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. What's in there is coming out. Nobody making you do anything. I don't care what Dr. Phil and that bunch tells you. Are we not living in a poor mouth society? Mama didn't change my diaper one Sunday morning in time. And I think I'll just roll her yard now. Make her life miserable. If you sin, you sin. But what a Savior. Maybe as we're standing, maybe what we ought to do is just thank him for his goodness, his grace, his kindness.